Future Church, Chapter 12, The Law of Vision. Real church growth is energized by shared imagination, not shared preference. I started teaching my daughter, Poema, how to play billiards at the young age of two. I almost began by reaching for a junior-sized cue stick, but I realized that was a bit ambitious. We needed to start with the most basic idea, get the ball into the pocket. So I pulled up a fluffy beanbag ottoman to make a comfy step stool. Now she could stand head and shoulders above the expensive table. Next, I wanted to teach her to feel the wind. I put a ball in her hand and showed her how to roll it into the side pocket. When she rolled one of the bright balls into the pocket, I yelled, made it, and spun around in a dramatic victory dance. When the ball missed and ricocheted off the cushion, my face drooped with a sad declaration, missed it. Through a systematic journey of daily pool lessons, I guided my daughter in the way of billiard legends. But one thing kept getting in the way, her creativity. Unencumbered by the finite game of eight ball, her playful eyes invented new ways of viewing the colorful spheres on the tabletop. The most important interruption occurred when her sensibilities as a budding ballet dancer collided with my training regimen. One day, she sent two balls spinning in close proximity to one another. The bright red three ball and yellow striped nine ball spiraled in a waltz across the tan felt. To Poema, the billiard balls weren't hurtling for a side pocket score anymore. They were doing something much more marvelous. Look, Dada, she declared. The balls are dancing. Poema's eyes opened with delight. The pool table had become a dance hall. With the patience only available to an older father, I smiled and paused the lesson. I learned that the pool table was a more creative place than I ever dreamed. Now I am practicing billiards dance moves that would make William Moscone jealous. I was determined to teach Poema how to play pool, but she was determined to use her imagination. It's not as though I wasn't using my own imagination at the pool table. It takes imagination to look at colored balls and see a game. But my imagination had hardened into assumption. Years of playing billiards highly refined what I saw when I stepped up to the table. I saw the boundaries of a finite game. I knew the rules and I knew when I broke them. I knew how to score and how to win. When I started teaching Poema, I was operating out of paradigm lock. That was all I could see. It certainly was not a bad thing. There is a lot of fun playing in that paradigm. But a child showed me that is not the only paradigm. It was helpful to me, refreshing even, to be reminded of my own one-dimensional perspective. My game with Poema is an everyday illustration of what my friend Alan Hirsch discusses quite a bit with respect to the church. Paradigm blindness. In their book, The Permanent Revolution, Alan and co-author Tim Catchum describe how a way of doing church creates a sort of theological amnesia. Shut in the predictable patterns of program church, we forget its core disciple-making DNA. Quote, We create a paradigm, a way of perceiving our world, of filtering out what is considered real and unreal, of creating mental models of how things should be. Once established, paradigms in many ways do our thinking for us. Although paradigms help us make sense of our world by giving us ways to interpret it, 
They also create what is called paradigm blindness, an incapacity to see things from outside that particular perspective or paradigm. For instance, well-worn formulas are used to define what it is to be a church, referred to as the marks of a church. And yet, without some serious theological gymnastics, they are patently deficient, especially in making space for the tasks of mission, discipleship, and human community. Many church leaders have been playing by the rules of program church for a long time. Their sanctuaries and worship centers are their game tables. They know how to score with butts and seats instead of billiard balls and pool table pockets, and they know who is winning and who is losing. The paradigm lock of program church tees up the seventh law, the law of vision. Real church growth is energized by shared imagination, not shared preference. Unlike the other laws, I have been thinking about this one every day for 20 years. Now I see it as the culminating principle of all the laws of the upper room. What I am talking about is not a matter of mere excitement. All church leaders start out excited to do church. As we lead others, we naturally want to pass on our passion for the things of God. But what if our daily efforts to get people energized about church are being sabotaged by the lower room in ways that evade our awareness? What if the everyday church leader has access to a realm of human empowerment that we are not even close to utilizing? What if we have lobotomized the imaginative capacity of the body of Christ? Leading from the upper room means energizing God's people with the creative capacity to see a better future. The mission of Jesus is the most imaginative endeavor on the planet, a game we play with God until Christ returns. As the Spirit of God empowers the people of God for the mission of God, we must not miss the image of God in everyone waiting to be activated by the imagination of God. Real church growth is energized by the greatest unique capacity we have as humans, our ability to transcend time and space in our mind's eye our ability to dream. We can't imagine the dance hall of disciple-making without the eyes of a child again. How shared preferences cause an energy shortage. Church leaders share a common experience. Whenever people come to wherever you are, you get energized. It does not matter where you are. If your heart is in the upper room, you get energized by people coming toward you there. If your heart is in the lower room, you get energized by people joining you there. Let me illustrate what I mean. As I said at the beginning of this book, if your heart is in the lower room as a church attender, your emotional attachment is to the place, personality, programs, or people of the church. These are the things you like about your church. So you get energized when you see more people come through the door and stick around because they evidently like what you like and that feels good. There may be sincere spiritual overtones to the feeling. Look at all the people coming to study the Bible on Thursday morning, if that's your preferred program. But the energy boost still comes from the experience of shared preferences with others. Whenever lots of people are coming to worship and participating in programs, the whole church can feel very energized. It's heady stuff. But, No matter how much energy lower room popularity generates, it's never enough to motivate genuine disciple-making. Shared preferences do not charge a person up to grow as a disciple. They certainly do not motivate someone to make a disciple.
shared preferences once provided enough energy to grow or at least sustain the church as an organization, but increasingly they do not supply enough even for that, judging by weekly attendance. Shared preferences do not provide enough energy for disciple-making because they do not touch the wellspring of change in a person's life, the imagination, especially the story the imagination spins in which the person is the main character. Everyone lives in a story. No one can live without a story to explain their life, the world around them, and the circumstances that befall them. It has even been said that in the face of hard-to-understand experiences, if you don't give a person a story, they will make up their own. In other words, a person will use their imagination to create a picture of how things fit together, a governing metaphor or narrative that makes sense of what by itself does not make sense. Putting things in their places to show how they fit in a greater whole is what we call meaning. Meaning is sort of like augmented reality, the feature in mobile apps and digital wearables that superimposes labels onto whatever picture is coming through the camera. For example, the rabbit ears on your daughter's video call or the dining hours and reviews of a restaurant hovering over its image on the screen. Meaning is the layer of labels we map onto the life we live so that it makes coherent sense. James McClendon uses the term tournament of narratives for the grand metaphors that people embrace to explain their lives. Brent Curtis and John Eldridge give the following examples. Some people escape to artists' created stories, a soap opera, a comic book universe, and immerse their minds in it whenever they can. Some imagine the story of victimhood, that the world exists to oppress them, and they are helpless. Others agree that the world is hostile, but they imagine life as a battle, a merciless competition for survival. Many prefer the story of romantic love, that life is about finding the person to whom they can say, like Jerry Maguire, you complete me. Some imagine the story of family, that eternal life arrives when their offspring thrives, Of course, there is the story of success and personal achievement as the key to life. Then sports fanaticism comes from imagining that someone else's success is my own, that we, not only the players on the field, but everyone wearing the colors, are number one. These are some of the unexamined narratives of imagination inhabited by the people who walk into your church each Sunday. They cannot distinguish these augmented realities running their lives from the objective world. I say running their lives because our imaginations directly influence our motivations. Any decent story has not only characters but also a plot. The plot is driven by some problem, some conflict that the main character is trying to overcome. Another way to say it is that there is a should built into every story. If a person imagines life as a battle, they should fight for victory. If life is a romance, they should win or be won by their beloved. If life is a quest for discovery, they should ferret out the explanation of things. A person's imagination, then, is so powerful because it tells them not only what the world around them means, but also what they are supposed to do in it. So, if you want to change a person's life for real... You have to win them over to a new grand metaphor in a renovated imagination. The Trap of Lower Room Imagination Unfortunately, the church often misses its chance to win over people's imaginations. 
I'm not just talking about drearily visionless churches. I mean churches whose leaders try hard to inspire life change by giving people a new story, but it falls flat. I'm talking about the lesser imagination of the lower room. I have spent my life helping church leaders marshal efforts and investment for the church's vision. I regularly teach six elements of compelling vision, including the golden tomorrow, describing the vision as the better tomorrow in which the listener will want to live, and the mind stretch, expanding the imagination with audacious, God-sized goals. With principles like these, I have tried my best to help pastors master the communication moment. Yet, not even church leaders are exempt from fighting in the tournament of narratives. We, too, live in the augmented reality generated by our imaginations, particularly what we imagine church growth to look like. If the image of church growth that governs a leader's mind is a packed house on Sunday morning to hear the dynamic communicator, that image will shape how the leader attempts to motivate people. At the end of the day, I have never doubted the intentions behind the big why when I work with church leaders on their vision. But I now wonder about the size of their inner story. I think about the governing narrative that may be subversively guiding their vision, and for that matter, my own. When it comes to casting a vision for the church, how much is about expanding the footprint, elevating the brand, or drawing in more people as ends, not as means? How much is a leader trying to rally support for the personal success story in their own imagination? Sometimes, even though the lower room vision story is too small, it wins some degree of support anyway, because many people feel they ought to contribute to the church. But their commitment only goes so deep. Even if a person gives a sizable amount of money to a capital campaign, that may not indicate much. If the person has means, it is often easier to give money than to give themselves. People may temporarily assist the story behind the leader's imagination, but that is a far cry from making it their own. People know they should care, but if it is ultimately someone else's story and not their own, why would they care? Trying and failing to win people to a lower room vision is frustrating. But think for a moment about the consequences of succeeding, of firing people up for the lower room of your church as the best thing they can imagine. People who get comfortable in the lower room might not be in church because they have a God-soaked imagination. Instead, they might be finding benefits in the lower room that fit nicely with their small-scale imaginations. A savvy leader might have figured out how to feed people's desire for place, personality, programs, and people well enough that they keep coming back. The result is a sweet spot for both the attenders and the leader. For instance, picture Curtis, a church attender whose biggest story in his imagination is winning the battle for more sales at work. If a church leader figures out how to invite Curtis into a program that is full of business contacts... Curtis keeps coming back. Or picture Janelle, whose highest narrative is finding the ideal husband who will rescue her from single motherhood. If a leader gets Janelle into a regular social circle where she can meet eligible, well-resourced men, Janelle keeps coming back. The leader might not even be aware that these are the reasons that Curtis and Janelle participate in church. But either way, 
the leader is rewarded with more attenders. In a lower room sweet spot, when the leader gives people what they want, which does not disturb and may even reinforce their small-scale imaginations, their attendance reinforces the leader's own small-scale imagination. If the largest story in the pastor's imagination is, we advance the kingdom when more people show up on Sunday, what happens? The preaching event may console, it may even instruct, but it does not reimagine a greater story, God's alternative story that people enter together, which truly changes their lives as disciples of Jesus. Instead, both pastor and people fortify each other's imaginations of the stuff of this world. I know this may sound too strong, but think about it. Even when a pastor attempts to unlock God's word and God's world in the preaching event, the reigning paradigm of church may still be imprisoning both the communicators and the listeners' imaginations. The preaching moment is still bound by the rules of eight ball, as it were. The pastor never consciously says, I prefer keeping myself and my listeners in a smaller story. But everyone leaves church winning, so to speak, in their smaller stories nonetheless. The shared preferences of a great facility, an engaging music style, chemistry with the pastor's personality, and a few friends at church, not to mention whatever other benefits may accrue to attenders' personal governing story, become the basis of attendance. The meaning is limited to the lower room. So why would a pastor risk the disruption of a larger story? A smaller story may be better at winning immediate attention and attendance. Everything seems to be going just fine. The Strong Incentives for Weak Imagination No pastor would lock their people in small stories on purpose. But pastors and people alike are stuck in an invisible system that needs imagination to stay small for it to keep going. At its best, Program Church is a we-can-do-it-you-can-help system. Senior leadership has a genuine dream for reaching the community for Christ and a strategy for doing so. That strategy needs a workforce, volunteers who staff the activities on the church's calendar, and the -the behind-the-scenes operation that make it all go. But what would happen if one of those volunteers got their own kingdom dream? The system is typically not designed to facilitate it. If the person wants to pursue a unique dream from God, They usually have to do it outside the church system. Yet, the moment the person shifts the investment of their limited time and energy toward fulfilling that dream, the church may lose the person's volunteer hours. Consequently, in program church, leaders are rewarded when people suppress their personal calling and imagination on mission in favor of the church's program dream. In short, There are system-wide incentives to keep people's imaginations as small as possible. Whether in program church or in future church, vision is the outworking of all the laws that come before. When a church has a culture centered on worship services, Law 1, is powered by relevance to consumer tastes, Law 2, is validated by participation numbers, Law 3, imports attenders out of their context, Law 4, runs on managing programs, Law 5, and is led by celebrity, Law 6, it must lack imagination. It must get its energy from shared preferences. 
A vision with truly shared missional imagination, shared by everyone, with everyone, not a one-way fiat from the top to the rest, would blow the whole thing up in the best possible sense. Imagine it. If the Lord were to pour out His Spirit on all flesh so that young men saw visions and old men dreamed dreams, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, program church would not survive the experience. By contrast, when a church has a culture centered on mission, is powered by the gospel, is validated by radical unity and love, is embedded in a diversity of local contexts, runs on growing people, and is led by calling, it must operate on shared imagination. There is no other way. The laws of the upper room themselves require an imagination stretched as wide as the heavens above. No one can walk according to the laws without being captured by what cannot be seen with earthly eyes. The three primary colors of kingdom imagination. Let's return again to what the law of vision says. Real church growth is energized by shared imagination, not shared preference. It's the difference between feeling energized by church and being energized to make disciples. It is like the difference between combustion and nuclear fission. Shared preferences bring the energy of burning one gram of coal. Shared imagination is like splitting the atoms in one gram of uranium-235, which produces five million times more energy. Nevertheless, despite the glory of an upper room imagination, leaders often fail to depict it because they fail to grasp it themselves. The evidence for shrunken imaginations is all around. For instance, consider how generic and simplistic the average church's vision statement really is. Almost daily, I encounter the ocean of threefold imperatives like love God, love others, serve the city, and gather, grow, go. We have no definition or shared understanding of these vague formulations. There is zero clarity and no imagination that lifts people out of program church. It's no wonder. Our time horizons are threefold. We get ready to execute this Sunday, one week. We prepare sermon series, one quarter, and we have to do our annual budget, one year. As church leaders, we have almost no verbal artifacts as evidence that we have seriously engaged our imagination to lead the people of God. The average pastor spends more time on sermon prep in four weeks than they do on vision casting over five years. But it doesn't have to be this way. As imagination artists, we have three primary colors on our palette that we mix to paint the grand landscape of upper room vision. They are parables, special calling, and local impact. These move our language from the generic to the specific to enchant disciples' hearts. One or two of them make a decent picture, but when you skillfully blend all three, you have every color you could ever need or want to enable people to see the world they think they know in a totally new way. All it takes is time and the will to practice. The first color, the parables of Jesus as the deep tone of vision. Because revelation feeds imagination, the Bible is the place to find the deep color tone that forms the base of the rest of the painting. There is no better way to get started than by reading, pondering, discussing, and preaching the parables of Jesus. Jesus' parables are ingenious because they not only convey truth, they engage the imagination with the unimaginable. 
Jesus uses the stuff of the present to illuminate the vision of the future. He uses what was well known to unveil the unknowable. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. The parables are the kingdom's operating system of thought, the basic metaphors that run the Godward life. Parables have a way of breaking through hardened categories to reveal truths beyond conventional wisdom. Is the kingdom of God big or small? Jesus has a parable for that, the mustard seed. Is God merciful or severe? There's a parable for that too, the unmerciful servant. Is Jesus returning quickly or after a long time? There's also a parable for that, the ten virgins. Is the kingdom inclusive or exclusive? Jesus told that parable as well, the wedding feast. In a minimum of words, the parables cut knots and resolve dilemmas by stepping outside fossilized polarities to reveal harmonized paradoxes. A church that is infused with parables also nimbly steps outside many of the A or B, this or that, pick-aside choices pressed on us by the world. Then the church itself becomes a parable of the kingdom of God. By teaching in parables, it is fitting that Jesus use metaphor so freely, because, in a manner of speaking, he is the ultimate metaphor. A metaphor is a verbal incarnation of an idea into concrete, tangible form. Similarly, Jesus is the incarnation of the Logos, the idea of idea itself, into flesh we could see and handle. John 1 verse 14 and 1 John 1 1. Jesus did not speak parables of the kingdom of God because he was groping for a way to get his message across in a foreign world. Rather, God designed the world through him to exhibit him and his kingdom when he came. In G. Campbell Morgan's profound words, he says, I am the true vine. Now, we make a mistake if we say that Jesus borrowed the figure of the vine to teach us what he is. The deeper truth is this. God planted the vine in the world and let it grow through the centuries on the pattern of the infinite Christ. The parables were the plan all along. Warren Worsby says that a parable starts as a picture, then it becomes a mirror, and finally it becomes a window. First, there's sight as we see a slice of life in the picture. Then there's insight as we see ourselves in the mirror. And then there's vision as we look through the window of Revelation and see the Lord. Centuries before online education, Jesus used parables to provide distance learning. A parable is a narrator, a metaphor in narrative form that lodges in a disciple's mind like a slow-release drug. Jesus packed layer upon layer of truth into an incredibly small span of words, and it continued secreting a deeply vibrant vision of the kingdom into the memory of Jesus' disciples long after he left earth. The power of the metaphor kept changing people years after they first heard it. Parables, then, are vitamins for the believer's imagination. They are the inheritance of the whole church, but they also nourish the imagination of each church. All believers are to have imaginations satisfied on the full buffet of the metaphors of the Lord. Yet there are certain pictures that lend special energy to each individual church that hint at the vision God has for it to serve Him 
in its place and time. The second color, long-term local impact as the midtone of vision. I have written about the unique vision belonging to each church more than I have written about any other topic. I wrote extensively on the subject in my book, Church Unique, which introduced the vision frame master tool, and I followed it up with the Horizon Storyline master tool for vision casting in God Dreams. In both books, I made the case for why it is so important for each church to get a clear vision from God for what it is supposed to do that 10,000 others could never do. Though I will not repeat chapters worth of discussion here, I will say a brief word on the subject. In short, is it possible that your church has a special assignment from God to fulfill that you have not yet named? Is it possible that God is yearning to give your church a fresh imagination of the gospel good that only you can display in your place and time? People might not know it, and they might not be able to put it into words, but they desperately need an on-ramp to the superhighway of the epic story of God's redemptive work in the world. Yet, it is very difficult for most people to grasp that story at the macro level of the globe unless they experience it in person at the micro level of a church, and then by discerning their own special calling at the nano level of their personal life. For example, I recently worked with Good Shepherd Church, currently pastored by Talbot Davis. During a two-day dream retreat, the team began imagining what it would look like to pursue the radical decline of divorces in the five zip codes around their church. They ended up declaring a seven-year beautiful marriage vision and launching a movement of marriage mentors. The vivid description of their vision begins, A pretty wedding lasts a day. A beautiful marriage lasts a lifetime. In seven years throughout our community, we will touch 10,000 married couples. We will help households prevent crises rather than manage them. We will redefine what culture says about marriage and reinforce what God says about it. My book, God Dreams, describes what this kind of dream does to fuel the imagination and contribution of a disciple-making culture. Now the church has given something for disciples to sink the teeth of their imagination into. It's the filet mignon for the mind rather than the cotton candy of a hollow gather-grow-go mantra or the fast food of the next sermon series. You simply don't care as much about the color of the church's carpet or your favorite preacher on the teaching team when you are fired up to pray for other married couples on your street. That's what makes the unique vision of the local church the midtone of the upper room, landscape. It mediates between the life of the individual and the work of God in the whole world. A picture of long-term local impact is like a booster rocket to God's cosmic vision for the universal church. The redemptive vision of what God wants to do through your church for some people in some place at some time transports people's imagination to what God wants to do for all people in all places at all times. It captures them and energizes them as disciples in a way shared preferences never could. The third color, personal calling as the bright tone of vision. To finish the landscape of a kingdom vision that captures people's imaginations, we need a bright tone to gild the fine details, namely the individual souls God has painstakingly crafted. People step into the upper room when they apprehend the special calling God has made them for in His grand plan. We have already explored this in some detail in the previous chapter, 
But I want to drive home again how crucial personal calling is for the church to thrive in its collective calling. In particular, I want you to see how your own imagination about what your people are and who they can become can be either the greatest limiter or an exponential accelerator to real church growth. Carl F. George observed, Through my years of consulting, I have learned that the pastors who are going to make it in church growth dare to dream and imagine that there is a better future out there than the one they have experienced. I submit the most important issue in empowerment is a holy imagination of what God can lead a person to become. When George wrote this, he was talking about a leader's imagination about themselves, what George called a sanctified self-image. But apply the same idea to the people led by the leader. Do you have a holy imagination of what a person in your church can become as grand as your imagination of your own potential? This question is critical because of the immense impact your imagination has on the people you lead. Few leaders get anywhere without the vision of a leader going before them. J. Robert Clinton devoted his life to studying how leaders are formed over a lifetime. Near the conclusion of his magnum opus, The Making of a Leader, Clinton articulated a profound insight that he called Goodwin's Expectation Principle. A potential leader tends to rise to the level of genuine expectancy of a leader he respects. You will never experience real church growth beyond the imagination you have for your people's contributions to the kingdom. I said the kingdom, not your church. I am talking about more than which volunteer slots they can fill. I am talking about them bearing fruit that lasts 30, 60, 100 fold wherever they go. Is your imagination big enough to conceive the grandeur of their personal callings? The imaginative virtue of prudence. All people naturally get stuck in the tyrannical givenness of the immediacy of this world. We are inclined to function as if this is all there is, even though we long for something more. Our calling as shepherds of the Lord's flock is to lift people's vision higher, to see more than this earthly plane of preferences. Yet, it is impossible to help people see above the ground level when our own eyes are stuck on it too. Church leaders function in relentless Sundays a coming world, a worship service to plan, programs to run, people to draw, nickels and noses to count. Once a year, leaders may pop their heads up at budget time, and there may be the occasional glance ahead when preparing a sermon series. The Greeks and later the church spoke of a virtue called prudence. At first, the word prudence might sound lame and boring. It sounds like eat your vegetables and don't spoil your supper. It also sounds like prude, a coincidence the words come from different origins. In other words, prudence sounds like the virtue of no fun. But in reality, prudence means the wisdom to make good choices now in light of what is to come. It is lifting vision higher to recognize the consequences of today's actions and the dangers and opportunities of tomorrow. In short, prudence is all about imagination. It is about separating oneself from the stream of consciousness gerbil wheel of the day-to-day to see over the distant horizon with a vision that transforms the here and now. The church needs more prudent leaders than ever before. Philosopher Charles Taylor writes of the social imaginary, the shared understanding in a society about what is good and bad, what makes sense and what does not. Kevin Van Hooser, 
says, We need an ecclesial imaginary, a shared vision of the kingdom of God that sets the norm of the people of God. The church needs its leaders to be ecclesial imagineers. You have heard Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, Where there is no vision, the people perish. That is because where there is no vision, the people cherish the stuff of this world, including their preferences of the church's lower room. But we may also say that where there is vision, the people pastor the parish of their local context by leading and growing people in Christ. Visionary imagination keeps all disciples moving the same way, even when they are not in the same room, because they are all in the upper room, viewing this world through the augmented reality of the kingdom of God.